Hey there, friend. Listen, I want to invite you to join me for an upcoming presentation I'm offering called How to Shift from Willpower to Want Power. If you're tired of feeling like you have the best of intentions with food and weight, only to have it all fall by the wayside by the time your head hits the pillow at night, then this is for you. If you're interested in making permanent weight loss easier and less of a struggle, then this is for you. If you're curious what want power is, which you probably should be, and can't wait to learn how to incorporate it into your journey toward peace and freedom around food, then this is for you. I'll be presenting live twice on Wednesday, May 1st, 2024, at both noon and 7.30 p.m. Central Time Zone. I'll answer your questions live and we'll have a really good time together. But if you can't make either of those days, I'm not going to make you get a replay emailed into your inbox only for it to get lost and never be watched no matter how deeply you want to make time to go through it. Because I mean, honestly, who are we kidding? (laughs) We've all done this, including me. No, instead, we are offering multiple watch parties for several days after the live presentation. So come watch the replay with other doctors and interact in the chat with them and my team. So either way, whether you come live or to a watch party, it will be worth your time for sure. All you have to do is register at katrinaubellmd.com forward slash want power. That's katrinaubellmd.com forward slash w-a-n-t-p-o-w-e-r. See you there. You are listening to the Weight Loss for Busy Physicians podcast with Katrina Ubell, MD, episode number 176. Welcome to Weight Loss for Busy Physicians, the podcast where busy doctors like you get the practical solutions and support you need to permanently lose the weight so you can feel better and have the life you want. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating and exhaustion and move into freedom around food, you're in the right place. Well, hey there, my friend. How are you? Welcome back to the podcast. If you're new here, then a hearty welcome to you. I'm so glad that you're here. Okay, I want to introduce my guest on this podcast. And this was just, we had so much to talk about that this ended up being a two-parter. And this first one's pretty long. I want to have you stick with me through it, though. It might take you a couple sessions, like right, little chunks to get through it. Maybe finish listening to it when you're getting ready in the morning, or when you're doing some chores around the house or things like that, going for a walk. But I cannot tell you how amazing I think that this interview is these two parts. Krista St. Germain is a certified life coach. And she went through a, I mean, arguably very traumatic experience. She tells you all about it and the whole circumstances by which her husband ended up dying. And through her experience of that, she actually found so much help through life coaching and then became a life coach herself. And so who she coaches now in her business is widowed mothers, but she has so much to offer for anybody who has experienced any sort of grief, any kind of loss. We even talk about the loss that so many of us are experiencing now with graduation ceremonies being canceled and all kinds of different things, just loss being loss. So even if you're not grieving someone right now, there's so much that can be learned from this. And I think this is going to be a set of episodes that you'll want to come back to at some point. You'll want to share with friends or someone that you know who's struggling with a loss. This is 
I just think super, super good stuff. She's really an expert in this area and then brings the life coaching slant to it as well. And so she and I totally connected over our joint loss, me having lost a child and her having lost her husband. And I just think that it's, she actually suggested to me to come on the podcast. And I was like, are you kidding me? How come I never have had you on? Absolutely. You have to come on your, your, your message and your help is so great. So this first section is focused on the stages of grief, how we originally learned them and how they really actually apply. And then we also talk about how to know if you're avoiding your grief and what's a normal way to actually process grief and get through it. And then we also spend some time on forgiveness after loss. And should you do it? So many people say you have to do it. Do you want to do it? How do you forgive someone who has really done something that most people would agree is unforgivable. It's just such a great, great topic to discuss. So it's one that I think you'll have fun listening to. It probably sounds like it's very heavy, but we have a good time as we always do. (laughs) And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So please enjoy my conversation with Krista St. Germain and definitely tune in next week for the second part of that conversation because there's a lot more to come. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Welcome to the podcast, Krista St. Germain. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Krista, I am super excited to have you on here. I don't know if you remember when we first met, but I do. (laughs) We Mm. both were coaches already and we were instructors teaching other people to be coaches. And I met you and I said... Hey, I knew that you were were coaching on grief. And I was like, hey, we should talk grief sometime. (laughs) Yes. I I forget that was the first time we met. We should. (laughs) That's not normal. I love it. It's not normal for most people. I love talking about grief. And I was like, ooh, I can talk about grief with her. And then we had a really lovely conversation and really hit it off. And so I'm super excited to have you here, especially as a two-parter to be able to share all your wisdom about grief. There's some stuff we're going to talk about that I can't wait to hear about because I don't know anything about it. And I don't consider myself a grief expert, but I do think I I know more than the average bear about grief. And I can't wait to learn more. And I know this is going to help my listeners so much, not even necessarily in their own work or their own grief, although I think it really will, but also just in their ability to help guide other people who are grieving around them, whether that's patients or, you know, people in their, you know, friend or family circle or whatever. So thank you for being here. Super excited about this. So I always start off with just asking you to tell us just, you know, a brief little overview about you and what you do. Yeah. So I'm a life coach and specifically I coach widowed moms. So about almost four years ago, my husband, Hugo, we were coming back from a trip and we had both driven our cars and I had a flat tire and he being the manly man that he was decided he must change that flat tire instead of calling AAA. And in doing so, he was hit by a man who we later figured out had meth and alcohol in his system. And he died about a day later. So something that I obviously didn't see coming. I really, you know, had never envisioned myself doing this kind of work specifically with grief until I had such a loss in my own life. And so kind of immediately went to therapy, back to therapy. I'd already had a therapist that I loved who had supported me through other things in my life. And that got me back to what I would say is functioning, right? Mm -hmm. That place where everyone's telling you how strong you look 
and you're back to work and you're getting the things ticked off the to-do list, but inside you're feeling empty and hollow and kind of wondering like, if this is really it, is this all that the world has to offer? And then I discovered coaching and coaching was so powerful for me, that transformation that I experienced and the realization that I actually could go and create a life that I genuinely loved, right? Instead of resigning to some sad version of what it was currently for me, mm-hmm. that I decided to become a coach. And specifically, that's what I love to do for other women is just help them figure out how to navigate their own kind of next chapter and making it into something they want instead of resigning themselves to something they think they should just be able to handle or tolerate. Totally. So, and yeah. so you left your whole corporate career and everything in this yeah. whole time now. Yeah. My husband and I had worked together at the same company and I wasn't overly passionate. I made business jets, beautiful business jets. He loved aviation. I didn't really, I love the people there, but it wasn't meaningful work for me. So I think one of the things that often happens is when you experience a significant loss, you start looking at things so differently and you start you know, valuing your time and your impact on the planet in a way that you didn't before. And so for me, I started thinking, "Eh, you know, it's good money, it's safe, but it doesn't mean anything to me. And I really want to do something that means something to me. And at the end of the day that I just feel rewarded about doing and aviation just wasn't it. So, yeah, I, I think I can, I can trace back a lot of the changes in my life, positive, you know, and just, leaving medicine and going into coaching and all of that back to the changes that happened to me with my daughter passing. Mm. You know, at the time, it was a slow, a slow, slow progression, but I can trace it back to, like you're saying, like valuing myself and my time that much more, just being more open to just all experiences. Mm-hmm. It really, I mean, there's, I don't know how it cannot change you Yeah, <laughs> going through something like that. And it, you know, led me down that path too. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. I'm glad you went through the whole story because I had already mm-hmm. been thinking like, okay, we have to get that out in the open because I know, I think most people are like this anyway, but, but doctors especially would be like, I can't even hear what she's saying until I know how the, he died. Like what yeah. happened? Was it cancer? Yeah. Is he in the military? Right. Like what happened? Right. <laughs> but it really was this super, super tragic tragic. Yeah, totally out of nowhere. Freak accident. Yeah. Yeah, freak accident followed by, you know, some unfortunate events in the hospital, but all in all, you know, less than a day. Yeah. from start to finish. Yeah. So. Yeah. So super duper crazy. Okay. I still like you were telling that story and I've heard that story many times and I still just got chills all over. Cuz it's just and you know, the way you talk about Hugo too, just, you know, I don't know, cuz it's okay to like, I always think like people are like, well, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, no, we do want to talk about the people who died. Like I know talk about him. I just love how you talked about how you had divorced. You mm-hmm. finally were in a relationship with someone yes. who's so awesome. And that yeah. was Hugo. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's all variations on bad. Right. But it was just that like you, you, it was like you had that taste of how good it was. It was exactly that. It's the taste of like, because my first marriage, you know, it wasn't what I wanted, but my second one, Hugo was proof to me that that is possible, right? It didn't last as long as I wanted it to clearly, but yeah, Yeah. gave me hope that it is out there. You can find it. Right. Right. Which is super cool. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the five stages of grief which they do teach us about in medical school, but 
there's more to that story and you're going to enlighten us. So go ahead and tell us. But now I kind of want to know what they taught you in medical school. (laughs) The standard. This is the way it goes. Do they teach it as like linear? No, they didn't teach it. I wasn't taught that it was linear. It was like, you can totally like do it in a, in a different pattern. You can move forward, move back, which at the time I was kind of like, well, I, you know, I haven't experienced a lot of grief at that point. And so Mm -hmm. I was kind of just more like learn it for the test kind of thing. But I do have to say that when, so my daughter who died was born on Easter Sunday Mm -hmm. and the hospital staff apparently tried to text him or, you know, page him actually (laughs) back in those Mm -hmm. days to let him know he missed that one page. They just tried once. So he didn't even find out my doctor what Mm -hmm. had happened until Mm -hmm. the next morning. So he came in first thing and, and I think he totally did like everything. I mean, OBGYNs deal with a lot of loss, like all the time. It's pretty standard for them. And, and so I, I think it was just, it was such a shock to everybody that I think he came in, found out, had to come in and talk to, like he hadn't had really any processing time or anything. But anyway, the point is one of the things he did bring up was he's like, oh, you remember the five stages of grief and you know, he kind of like tossed it out there. Sort of like, here you go. This is the thing I know about grief here, you know, here. <laughs> his intention yeah. was so good. But I remember being really angry at the five stages of grief. <laughs> I was just like, this is stupid. This doesn't even make any sense. So... Yeah. And I think that's partly because of, you know, the way that it came about. And that's maybe what's most misunderstood is that originally the five stages of grief, it's, you'll find it first in On Death and Dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work. And her work was based on the process of studying people who were dying themselves, right? So it was really about the, the idea of how do we come to terms with our own loss, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily how we experience the loss of someone we love. So that work was a little misunderstood because of, you know, yeah, just how it was used. Then later she went on to write a book called on grief and grieving, similarly using the five stages. But what matters is that this is one of many theories it's just the most popular one, right? It's misunderstood, but it's the most popular. And because we live in a culture that really doesn't like to talk about grief or death, we don't know anything else. And so we just default to what we do know, which is like not entirely accurate, right? So first of all, the stages are not linear. There's no sort of progressing one through another. There's even calling them stages kind of makes it seem like like a step. Like that's really a misnomer. And it, it is a misnomer. And... It's not even as though everyone goes through all of those quote unquote stages, right? So it's anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And sometimes people experience all of them. Sometimes they don't. So what I love about any sort of theory is that it helps normalize the experience that you're having because when you're in grief, most of us think we're crazy. Most of us think there's something wrong with us or that we're doing it wrong or that we're, you know, what we're experiencing is abnormal. So to be able to be told that if you're angry, it's okay, that's useful. But to be told, well, this is the part where you get angry right now. You're in the anger stage. Right. (laughs) Especially if you get angry for like one moment, you're like just mad. They're like, oh, here's anger. And you're like, right. Okay. And then later anger might come back, right? It's, It's not as though we experience an emotion once or some sort of stage and then we're done with it. Mm-hmm. And so it's just really misused. So it yes, be many- better to just be like, here's this bag full of emotions that are totally normal to experience when you're going through this process. 
at any point, at, and any, at point. any duration, <laughs> right? And no timelines apply. And so, and when you think of the, the concept of stages, unfortunately, what people take from that is that there's some sort of end point. I think I took it from that. I was like, you know, stage me. It's like, think about like the stages of child development. It's like you develop past that and then you're done with that. Yeah. It's most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so an emotional childhood as, a, as an adult, but right. Most of the time you think like, oh, we're complete with that and moving forward. Mm-hmm. I was very in my grief, very much like, okay, that's, you know, this hurts super bad. So like if someone could just let me know when it's going to not be so bad and it's going to start being better, that would be Mm -hmm. awesome. And everyone's answer to me was always, it just takes time. Like in particular, there was one, it was actually, I used to take care of her kids. So at the time she was a patient of mine and she had reached out because she had had a somewhat similar experience, I think six years prior. So she had heard what happened to me and actually came to the funeral and everything, reached out to me and we were spent time together. And I remember just saying like, but like, how long does it take? Like, I need to know when it's going to be better. Like I can do this, which of course now I know is like so resisting and willpower. Like, okay, I can do it. I can just like hold my breath and muscle through if I just know when it's going to end. And of course Mm -hmm. that's not at all what the experience is like. And that felt very frustrating to me. And like, like, you just have to be patient. I'm like, screw that. Screw being patient. I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's helpful if we tell people that you know, it's not always going to feel as painful as it currently feels, but then we swing to the other side. And if we think that time is what heals, then we tend to avoid the experience of processing the emotion and like doing, you know, processing the, all the ick. And we distract ourselves with things Mm -hmm. just to try to make the clock go faster. Right. Like if I can just get the time to pass, then it's better. Oh yeah. I see. I can see that. And, And sometimes, especially with widows, for some reason, we seem to think that something magical happens at the one-year mark, mm-hmm. right? People tell us this. Yes. Well, well the first year is the hardest. Black for a year, it was like this whole thing, like at, at a year, yeah. you're done. Now you can come back. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and as though if you survive, you know, the first anniversaries and everything that happens in the first year, if you get through that one time, then somehow magically it becomes easier. And yeah. it's just not at all what t- people typically experience, regardless of what their loss is. So... I love the idea that yes, it won't always feel as intense as it currently does and that time can be helpful, but we can't hide behind time heals mm-hmm. and expect that just magically, right? poof, we, yes. know, we feel amazing. And One thing that, that happened to me that I thought was super helpful, and I've told actually many people about this, is that I was like probably a few weeks out from my loss and a friend of mine came over to just, you know, say hi or whatever. And she said that she had just recently spent time with her grandmother who was like well advanced into her nineties. And so she was spending time with her grandmother and she told her grandmother what had happened to me because it was on her mind. I mean, everyone in my life was so, everyone was like, how could this have happened? Similarly, I'm sure to you, right? Like nobody could process it. Everyone was just like, what? And so she said, she told her grandmother and her grandmother was like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. She's like, what? <laughs> so my friend was like, I, she had no idea. And she was like, oh yeah, he would have been, well, however old, you know, like 73, he was between your uncle so-and-so and your other, you know, your other uncle. And I think about him all the time. And I was like, wait, what? Even in her nineties, mm-hmm. still thinking about him? Yeah. Like still missing him? I'm like, oh, this is never going to end. Yeah. Like that's really when it hit me. Like, there is no like 
then you're done. There's no resolution of of this whole experience. Like it's just going to have various forms throughout my whole life. And that actually was helpful to me (laughs) because I was like, oh, okay. It's not like I'm doing it wrong if I'm still experiencing these emotions. Like it's just part of the deal. And I can open up to like my whole life, I'm going to miss her. And to be honest, it it actually felt kind of good because it felt like a little bit wrong to think about moving to a place where then I would just, I guess what, like never think about her or right. like just have it not be an issue. You know, it just seemed like that wasn't honoring her. So I felt like it kind of gave me some permission to just be like, okay, this is normal. Like this mm-hmm. is okay. And I think what was also helpful about hearing that was like, it used to be that when someone had a stillborn baby, they wouldn't even let the mother see the baby. They thought it was better. So the the woman would deliver the baby and they would literally just like take the baby out of the room and everyone would pretend like it never happened. Mm. And then, you know, like get back at it, have another baby. Like that's pretty much how it was handled. So I'm pretty sure that's how it was handled mm-hmm. for, for my friend's grandmother. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm like, okay, so even when the common practice is to sweep it under the rug and don't talk about it and don't even ever mention it again, you still remember that baby. Like, oh, okay. Like this is, it's okay to do that. Yeah. It's okay yeah. to but still the, remember your baby. And yeah, and it's just some of the language that we use doesn't point to that, right? When we say things like your grief journey, mm. you know, journey implies that there's an, there's end. an end point. There's, yeah. You're going to get somewhere, but mm. you're, you're exactly right. It is, it's something that changes you and it becomes part of the fabric of your life experience. And that's neither good nor bad, but it is. Yeah. And it's it's like an incorporation. Yes. Just like you have all kinds of life experiences. This is, this is one yeah, of them. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So yeah, basically stages of grief is like, don't even call it stages. It's just, these are emotions that you may or may not feel. And if you feel them at any time, it's normal. It's okay. Right. You don't have to then go to, I'm doing this wrong. Something's wrong with me and making it that much worse. Exactly. And that's so much of the suffering that I see in people who are grieving is them telling them, trying to compare themselves to how they perceive it should be done. Mm-hmm. based on what they know about the five stages or what other people are telling them and the feedback that they're getting, they should be moving on, yeah. you know, and yes. really just instead of just letting it unfold as it does and loving themselves as it unfolds. Yes. Which by the way, <laughs> extrapolates to all emotions, right? Like just knowing like this is a normal human emotion. It's normal to feel stress. It's normal to feel nervous. It's normal to feel frustrated. It's okay to experience this. I don't have to make that just go away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Big parallels there. Okay. So how would somebody know if they are avoiding their grief? Because I think that this happens a lot. And Mm -hmm. I think like what I found for myself was like, I would think that I'd get to like a pretty good place. And then there'd Mm -hmm. be like another layer that come up and I'd be like, Oh, huh. didn't know that was there. <laughs> so, and so did you know, did, were you consciously trying to avoid that other layer? I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't even aware that it existed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it came into my awareness. And what happened for me was I, because I hadn't really ever experienced any kind of like really significant loss. Like I had one grandparent who was alive while I was alive and she died when I had just turned seven and she lived overseas. So I did know her and have a relationship mm-hmm. with her, but I didn't get to go to the funeral or anything. Like it was just, it just wasn't 
she wasn't a part of my day-to-day life or anything like that. And that was pretty much all I'd experienced. So I immediately went to Amazon and bought all the books on infant death and loss and stillbirth that I could find and read them all. And some were more helpful than others. But luckily I read those and they all said like, you have to go through, like you can't skip this part. And what many of them said is that if you try to just stuff it down, what people find is that, you know, years later, they've gained a ton of weight or now they're divorced or like some other kind of consequence that they really didn't want. And I was like, well, wait a minute, I don't want to get divorced over this whole thing. And, and, you know, this was all happening before I learned about coaching, before I knew anything about Mm -hmm. how coaching could help with my weight, but I already had been struggling with my weight plenty. And I was like, well, hold on a second. I don't want to end up gaining a hundred plus pounds over this whole thing seems like I have to actually do this. And there's, I'm, I'm not, you know, some people like remember quotes like so well, I'm mm-hmm. not a quote rememberer in general, but there was one quote in one of the books that I read that has like seared itself into my brain. And that is grief is patient. It will wait for you. It will wait. I- and I was like, Oh, I yes. get it. Like yeah. I cannot, I, I, I can do it now or I can do it later, but there's no skipping this part. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, okay, I'm all in on doing it. So the people who are avoiding the pain, right, are the ones who are like, maybe if I just skip it, then I won't have to feel it. And so let's talk about that. I'd love to hear your take on Yeah. And then it's made even more interesting by what they're being told from other people, right? Everybody else is an expert, even when they haven't had that. Just stay busy, right? Just stay busy. So I think it comes from the way that you know is when the the emotion that you kind of sense is there is in the fear family. Okay. Right. When you when you are afraid to stop doing something for fear that if you stop, you will fall into a black hole, mm. there's something we want to pay attention to. Okay. Right. So if the idea of not working as much as you're working scares you a little bit because you're afraid of what will happen when you're alone with your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. If the idea of not running as much as you're running, mm. right, exercising yeah. as much as you're exercising, it's any behavior, including distraction, you know, with TV and food and alcohol and, yeah. you know, any of those things, shopping, anything we're doing to just try to keep a, a lid on the emotion because it feels like a black hole that we're going to fall into. And we just keep telling ourselves that if I just don't allow myself to go there, then it'll get better. You know, I've been seeing in my clients, a a few of them who've totally put off their grief work are finding that now that they can't work, because of course we're recording this right now while we're in quarantine, that Mm -hmm. they're like, uh, apparently I have work to do, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like I can't run away from it anymore. Showing up. That's exactly what you're talking about. The, The inclination to sleep more than you really want to, because it's easier emotionally to sleep. Right, oh, it's but such it's, an escape. I remember that too. I actually had seen a therapist right away. I went home on Monday and Wednesday, I think I got in to see this therapist. She had helped me with just some struggles that I was having with fertility issues. And luckily she got me in right away and she gave me some good advice. She said, do not sleep more than eight or nine hours a day. And I thought that was such good advice because I would have not left the bed and just tried to sleep it all away. That was kind of my, whenever I was really nervous or scared about something as a kid, I would put myself to sleep. Like that was my coping mechanism Mm -hmm. to just Mm -hmm. like check out. And so I really would make myself get up because I really, I was just so like, I didn't know what was happening. I was in such a like 
uh, dazed and shocked kind of existence. I was like, well, someone told me I can't sleep more than nine hours. I guess I got to get up. Mm. And it wasn't, I, I personally didn't have trouble falling asleep because I think being so emotional was so exhausting. <laughs> right? yeah. I was like wiped, you know? So yeah. anyway, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're bringing that up about sleeping yeah. too much. Yeah. And I think it can be a little deceptive because you might think that you can spot that by a behavior that has a negative overall consequence in someone's life, but that's not necessarily the case, right? So you could throw yourself into reorganizing and redecorating your house as a way to avoid the feelings that you have. And it might look exceptionally productive to the outside world. And it's not morally right or wrong, but it also could be a way that you are trying to escape the feelings that you don't Mm -hmm. want to feel. Do you think like, I've, I've definitely read this and heard multiple people say this, that after a loss, you shouldn't move for a year. You shouldn't switch jobs for a year, like things like that. Do you think that that advice comes out of the idea of don't make kind of rash changes from a place of trying to escape? Yeah. Don't make rash changes from a place of trying to escape. Also just recognize that what's happening in your body and in your brain is real right? You aren't able to think as clearly. You aren't able to process as well as you once did. And you aren't able to logistically or logically process things because the emotions that you're experiencing are so high and because, you know, the the stress is is just having an impact on you, on you physically. So I think that's where that comes from. Do I always think it applies? No. Yeah. Well, it's like anytime somebody tries to come up with hard and fast rules, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah. But I do think like when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's kind of good, like good advice in the sense of just take your time. Don't be in a rush, right? Because I think sometimes we're like, well, hey, if I just switch jobs, if I just move, if I just get out of this area, then I'll feel better. Then it won't be so hard if I don't have to see that area where that thing happened or if I don't ever have to go back by that place again or all the reminders of that person in that area, then it'll be better. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you won't have those reminders, but it's not like you're going to forget that person existed in your life. Well, right. And you know what we know, and I know what you teach as a coach is that it's never the thing that causes the feeling, right? right. It's always what we think about the thing that causes the feeling. And so if we just keep trying to change the thing, the job, the house, the whatever, then we might be really disappointed later when we realize we're somewhere else in some other place, but still having the same emotional experience of it because our brain came with us, right? We didn't actually do the work at the thought level. And that's, it can be an unfortunate surprise when people think the answer is to change what is outside of them. But sometimes with grief, changing what is outside of you actually can be useful, right? So maybe there was a really traumatic thing that happened in your house. Right. And maybe it is best for you to have a different living environment. Right. Right. So it's, totally. it's, it's so it's situational good guidance, right. but it is so situational. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever find just working with widows that people recommend or suggest or encourage them to try to find someone new, like get out there and start dating again? Quickly crazy town. Quickly? It's crazy town. Yes. And oh, it's, <laughs> I only bring that up because people, of course, once you've lost a baby, they're like, you guys are young. You can have another. Like, I didn't want a baby. I wanted wanted my baby. (laughs) I wanted that one. (laughs) I think people just 
are so uncomfortable with negative emotion and they don't know how to feel better when we feel bad. Yes. And so it is just their way without knowing it and with being very well-intentioned of trying to get you to feel better so that they can feel better. And that's where all of those silver lining thoughts come from. You're young. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Don't worry. You can have another baby. You know, always trying to find the silver lining, mm-hmm. hoping that that will make you feel better so that, that they can feel better. Right. Yeah. <sighs> not helpful to the griever. No, not helpful to the griever. It isn't. (laughs) We're going to talk later though about in the second episode that we're going to do on this, how to be helpful to the griever. But before we move on, you were telling me about the dual process model of grief. And I want to make sure that we talk about that, like how to actually process the grief, what is recommended. Well, so I know that you teach a lot about, you know, how we use specifically food to get away from our feelings. Mm -hmm. And so What I think is important to understand is that when we're healing, we actually don't want to spend 100% of our time doing the loss-oriented work, right? We don't want to just be all in the grief and trying to do the grief work and trying to feel all the feelings and, you know, being really intellectual about the loss and all the processing. It's too much. And so- We kind of feel like we should be, right? Like I remember laughing at my son who was four at the time and then feeling so bad that I laughed. Yes. God forbid we would have humor through grief, right? So inappropriate sometimes. So inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So the the dual process model just basically says that we oscillate back and forth. We have loss-oriented activities and restoration-oriented activities, and it's okay and it's necessary for us to oscillate back and forth between the quote-unquote work of grief and rest from it. Mm -hmm. And we can rest from it without buffering from it. Yeah. Right. Rest doesn't mean escape in ways that don't serve our lives or our bodies or our mental well-being. It's how do we give our brain and our body a break from the work of grief Mm -hmm. so that we can, when we're ready, come back and maintain that, you know, back and forth oscillation. Which is how children process grief. Naturally. Mm-hmm. They just do it on their own without knowing right. what they're doing, which that's actually super fascinating to me. I'm just making this kind of connection now in my brain. Like I remember when I was going through everything, just being like, you know, kids, they, they're so healthy. Like, they do this in such a healthy way. It's so great. Whereas we're over here just like thinking we should feel bad all the time. to do the work. Like, oh, actually, yeah. it's not like, oh, kids know how to do that. We do too. If we stop thinking that there's a certain way that it should yeah. be done or that we're doing it wrong or that it's somehow dishonoring the deceased if you're not feeling terrible all the time or something like that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a part of our healing and we have to have that back and forth balance. And I think another thing we want to look at is you know, using a substance to get away from a feeling is very different than consciously deciding to take a break. Yeah from the work of grief, right? So mm-hmm. consciously deciding, okay, I actually want to sit down and do a craft project or I want to sit down and watch mindless television. Right. But it's it's because I know that my brain needs a break. Right. And I will like benefit I can escape into the Kardashians right now and that and I, would be okay. <laughs> and I do it with intention and self-love and it doesn't come yeah. because I'm thinking that I can't handle what's on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. It's because I know that healing involves rest. Yes. Well, and what I love about that too is because the grief process is intense, right? It, it's, I mean, this is my thought. I'm like, oh, do I really want to say this? But I'm just thinking like it's, it can be depleting energetically, right? Like it just, mm-hmm. I felt like it just, it would take a lot out of me. Mm-hmm. And 
you can only keep that up for so long. It's like, even, you know, when you're, if you're doing that like deep sob cry, like you can only do that so long before like your body's done. Like there's just nothing left. Like you have to take Mm -hmm. a nap or you need to go for a walk or whatever you need to do. So our bodies even tell us naturally if we're paying attention Mm -hmm. that it's appropriate now to leave that where it is and move into that rest space. Mm -hmm. And that rest doesn't mean like necessarily like taking a nap. It really could be just like going about your day, the regular other things, going to work, thinking about something else, basically. Yeah. And people need to figure that out for themselves, right? And stop judging activities as good, bad, right, wrong. Like what is useful to them that gives them the break that they need and is restorative in nature? Yeah, right. right? It's not covering, it's not burying a feeling. It's helping them take a break. Yeah. And they're different. It's like, well, we're going to talk, like I said later about how to support some of it makes me think like the, one of the best supports you can offer to somebody is helping them to see that they really can do it. They don't need to be told how to do it. Like I was like, I don't know how to do this. Let me read the books. Like, you know, clearly like there's a how to way to safely and, and, you know, effectively and successfully get through a grieving process. I just need to find out out what that is Mm -hmm. rather than looking at that way instead going, you can honor yourself. I mean, it's so similar to like, when you think about like intuitive eating, right? Like eating when your body needs food also going, Hey, what do I really need? Was my body and brain need right now? Is it to process some of this grief? Cause I, I would always say like I had days where I felt like the tears were like at my neck and then I had days where the tears were like at my eyeballs, like they're just Mm. ready to spill out, right? Those days it's like, Hey, I probably need to let some of them out so that Mm -hmm. they can recede. (laughs) And then I don't feel like I want to sob like at every single second. Right. And just honoring that instead of like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed at how often I get that question. It comes in different forms, but that's the bottom line question is, am I doing it right? Am I okay? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about forgiveness after loss. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much forgiveness that often can happen, right? Forgiving yourself, forgiving the person who died, forgiving if you think that somebody else was to blame for the death, like say there's like a drunk driving kind of a situation, blaming the drunk driver. So working on forgiving that person or just Mm -hmm. a whole number of things. Let's talk about that. But you also, I also want to make sure you talk about your personal story of forgiveness because it does involve one of the doctor's that mm-hmm. took care of you go in the hospital. And I just think that that's going to be super powerful for all the doctors who are listening, who yeah. might have had a situation or experience similar to being that doctor and what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess before we jump into that, my overall thought on forgiveness is we want to not think of it as morally good or bad, right? It's It's always an option, but if you're the one that has the forgiving to do, it's not something you should do. It's Mm. something that if you want to do, you can. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people really struggling because they're telling themselves they should, but yet they aren't ready to. A lot of beliefs about forgiveness and who should forgive and why you should forgive. Yeah. And it's morally right to forgive and God forgives. And yeah, people put a lot of expectations on themselves as it relates to forgiveness. And that actually makes it a whole lot harder Mm -hmm. sometimes and a lot more... It's like the more you feel like you're forced to do it, the less you want to. Right, right. So if you want to, it's an option. You don't have to. And when you decide, if and when you decide you want to, you can. So Mm -hmm. I think that's important. So for me, it was kind of three major 
components of forgiveness that I went through. So the first one was just forgiveness with myself because I had the flat tire Mm-hmm. And I had lots of thoughts about where I parked my car if I had only pulled it up, you know, further on the highway, if I had only gotten the car checked before the trip, right? All the things that I decided with my brain that I should have done differently than I did and then needed to forgive myself for. Or had so you part done of, them differently, believing that had you done those things differently, he wouldn't have died. Would it wouldn't have happened. Alive. It was totally yeah. preventable. I should have, this is what I was telling myself. I should have insisted we call AAA because I knew it was dangerous. I felt it in my bones. It was mm-hmm. dangerous, but I ignored that voice. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go back and do that work. And what I found really helped me the most was just really looking at why I did what I did and knowing that of course, when we look back on something, we have new data. We have information we didn't have at the time. Right. But nobody, nobody in the moment makes an intentionally bad decision. Right. Right. We're all doing the best we can with what we know at the time. And so to be able to go back through each stage and remind myself that I really was doing the best I could with what I knew. And of course, if I had known there was going to be an accident, I wouldn't have parked there. Of course, I would have insisted we call AAA, but I didn't know any of that until afterwards. And that was what I had to come to for myself to be able to let that go and stop blaming myself and forgive myself for what I felt was my role in that. Now, who even knows, right? Who even knows what would have made a difference? Right. So that was the first part. People sometimes are reluctant to I find that a lot of people are very reluctant to believe that they made the best decision they could with the information they had. They, they, it's almost like this desire to cling to basically the beating themselves up. Like they deserve it. Like if I just beat myself up for the rest of my life, then maybe that makes up for makes up for the awful thing, bad outcome or this, yeah, this awful thing that happened. Yeah. Or I think sometimes people think that it's actually genuinely useful. Mm. They think that if they don't beat themselves up, then somehow they won't apply the lesson, right? Or they'll do it wrong in the future. And so it's kind of like how with weight loss, we'll tell ourselves that, you know, we we kind of want to shame ourselves into change, but it never really works. Right. I think it's like the same thing here where we see something that happened in the past and we didn't like it. And so we beat ourselves up about it, thinking that somehow that will Mm -hmm. lessen the chance that it happens in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. That way. Yeah. Okay. So that was the first part of it. And then, you know, the second part, of course, was the driver that hit us and caused the accident. And that actually, that was work that it took a while and it came in stages. But, you know, first we found out that he had meth and alcohol in his system and, and had some prior convictions and, other things. And he survived the accident, right? Oh, he survived the accident. Yeah. He popped right out of the car right there as it happened. You know, so I'm running around to the other side of the car. I was I actually happened to be looking down. I was sending a text to my daughter to tell her we would be late. So I didn't actually see the impact. I just heard it, but there was no brakes, right? So mm-hmm. he hit the back of Hugo's Durango, which trapped him in between his car and my car because he was getting in the trunk trying to get to the spare tire. And so then the the driver kind of stumbled out of his car basically in disbelief and ended up in the ditch. But I was of course very distracted and trying to call 911 yeah, yeah. and you know deal with that. So but then to have him in the hospital at the same time and know that he was being treated there and just had a lot of a lot of anger towards mm-hmm. him and 
had to work through that, right? And ultimately for me, it was kind of going back to that same line of thinking for myself. Nobody, in my opinion, on a Sunday afternoon at 5.30 has meth and alcohol in their system if they're loving their life. Right. Right? This is clearly not a man who was happy and he was probably doing the best job with what he knew too, even though it fell terribly short of what my expectations would be of a human driving a car on a highway. And even though I think he should be held responsible for what he did, it wasn't hard for me to get to a place where I didn't believe that he did it on purpose. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also just realizing that to hold on to anger for him didn't hurt him. He couldn't feel my anger. You know, other people can't feel our feelings. And so to hold on to that anger would really just punish me. And I didn't want that. Mm -hmm. I genuinely didn't want that. So, you know, at his, we never went to trial, but just at his, the hearing where they, you know, tell you how much time you're going to get in jail. I felt really good about telling him that I forgave him. Mm -hmm. And I think it was very healing for both of us, for him to hear it, you know, and for me to say it and for his family to hear it from me that, you know, that didn't define who he was. That was just a moment in time. And that didn't have to define what he did with his life. And I really sincerely believe that. Right. And I, I asked him, you know, please go forward and live for my husband too. Right. But oh gosh, that like makes thing. me choked up. <laughs> yeah, it I mean, was, what a gift you gave him and his family, right? I hope so. I, I, his I mean, family definitely. With yeah. it, but just giving him the opportunity to just know, like, even the people on the other end of the worst thing you've done in your whole life, yeah, are rooting you on. Like, you can change yeah. this. You can turn. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to define you, and and nothing we've ever done in our past has to define us. You yeah. know. Yeah. So that was the story with him. And then the doctors in the hospital. So long story short, procedure didn't go as desired. And a resident was doing it. And, you know, his supervisor tried to kind of come in and save the procedure and was unsuccessful. And so he coded. And so they did CPR and tried to save him for about an hour. And it was, you know, one of those unfortunate things that in a procedure can go wrong and did. And it's just in my, so what happened was basically after, you know, we watched them do CPR for as long as they did and try. Then you go back in the little room and they come to talk to you, you know, it's all over. And the doctor who was, I don't know what the, you're the doctor, so you can tell me what the term is, but who was in charge basically. Okay. And like tried the attending, to, like the, oh, the one who was not okay. a trainee. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was not a trainee and he just broke down into tears. And I mean, it was clearly emotional for him and told me that what had happened and that, you know, the resident had done the best job he could, and this was a complication and that he tried to fix it and he couldn't, and he was just so sorry. And, you know, my family was in there with me in the room and one of my family members said something like, so basically what you're saying is that you killed her husband, like you killed him. Oh, wow. It was quite the moment, right? Yeah. And so he's crying, I'm crying, everyone's crying. And, and he said something about how, you know, he needed to go and he had other patients that he was struggling to be able to think of how he could possibly help in his current emotional state. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the words he said, but that's basically what, what he told me. And 
I don't know. In that moment to me, I just felt like super compassionate towards him because mm-hmm. he was being so honest with me. Yeah. Nobody wanted my husband to die. Nobody wanted oh. that procedure to go the way that it did. And so I just gave him a big hug and I told him, you know, like I, it is what it is. And I know you didn't do it on purpose and you need to go and you need to do what you need to, to do for these other patients who need you. And I don't know. I think my, some of my family thought I had three heads at that point. That was not the emotional experience. <laughs> you were already we were destined having. to become a coach. <laughs> I, I really, it was just though, like you just, you, you have such compassion, right? We're all doing the best we yeah. can as humans. And right. sometimes it just doesn't go the way we want it to. Wait, no, no doctor ever goes into a procedure or a surgery or anything going, Hey, let's just let this one go. Let's right. not try that hard this time. Like yeah. always the expectation is we're going to do everything remotely possible to have the best possible outcome. Yeah. Always. And I, and I watched him. I watched through that window. I watched him work hard. I watched, I could see the anguish on his face. Mm-hmm. And there so was, was not the, a, So this must, this was on the floor. Where was this? No, this was in the intensive care unit. Intensive care. Okay. Because obviously, if yeah. they're in an operating room, you wouldn't be able to see. Okay, right. So they were they were prepping him so that he was going to lose a leg, and they were waiting for that for the that doctor to be free to mm-hmm. to take his leg, yeah. maybe two, but at least one. And so they were trying to run a pick line mm-hmm. to get him ready for yeah. another procedure after that. And because mm-hmm. there was so much damage in his leg, they ran it up high. Yeah, and then punctured a hole in his heart, basically. Oh. So again, not a medical person. I don't even really care to revisit all the medical details of what happened, but (laughs) I'm like, always like for most people, that's not relevant, but for the people listening to this, it is probably relevant. So maybe that just opened a bag of worms for all of (laughs) your listeners. I don't know. But you know, the point being, he didn't mean for it to happen. He tried his best to bring him back and he couldn't. And we can't own that kind of stuff. We can't take that burden on and, And so to me, it was just easier to just like tell him that and, and let it yeah. go and yeah. move on. Cause it is what it is. And whenever, you know, whenever we are where we are, it's so much easier just to decide that that's where we are instead of railing against mm-hmm. it. Right. You know, Byron Katie has that famous quote, everyone dies right on time. And when yeah. I first heard that, it wasn't until maybe seven years after my daughter had died and I resisted that big time. Mm-hmm. like. No, (laughs) I was really like, won't even entertain that. I just was for me very much still in that medical mindset of no, seriously, like if we look at the odds and whatever, and had I done this, then the chances of her being alive would be that it wasn't, I mean, it took a while for that to really sink in for me to understand what that means is none of it was ever a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I can believe that there would have been a different outcome had I done something differently, but there's no guarantee that yeah. it would have happened that way. And all everyone dies right on time does for us is it just gives us the gift of stopping resisting what actually happened. Yeah. So did I like you hear to hear that. Did you know that already? That that I did not know that exact phrase. And how it was first presented to me was the idea of should and shouldn't, right? So for me, it came from Brooke Castillo, Mm -hmm. which was that to say that something that has happened shouldn't have happened, you know, and Byron Katie's, you Mm -hmm. can, when we argue with reality, we lose, but only 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. I was, I struggled with, with this idea that he should have died. Right. Right. I was kind of somewhere in the middle where 
I could see the pain that he shouldn't have died was creating for me, but to actually believe the thought that he should have died felt wrong for a long time, even after I became a coach. And at some point I realized, oh, wait, it's not that it's a should or shouldn't. It's that I have the choice to believe a thought that brings me peace. I don't have to believe that thought anytime before I want to believe that thought. But when I want to believe it, if I want to believe it, I can choose to believe it. And at a certain point, then it felt empowering to be able to make that choice to believe that what should have happened was what was supposed to have happened mm-hmm. as opposed to having that kind of imposed on me. Right. Which is like, I hey, first. you need to think about it this way or like... This right. That's how I first received it. And it was yeah. another kind of one of those, well, F you, like, right. <laughs> right. you know, moments. Yeah. Of, right. Tell me my husband. What do you know die? about it? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. No, he shouldn't. Yes. Well, same uh-huh. thing. Like, you know, my baby should have died. I was like, um, no, <laughs> that's yeah. not what was supposed to happen. Yeah. But I think what helped me was, and it's uh, sometimes hard for me to even articulate how this, how this really helps, but really thinking that it was just believing it was never going to be any different than it was. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know. Like I thought I was going to deliver a baby that was alive mm-hmm. and was going to live a, a long, normal, healthy life. I just didn't know that that wasn't what was going to happen. Right. And I can have some compassion for myself in that, just going like, oh, I just was confused. I just didn't know. Yeah. And then yeah, it's every- not like should or shouldn't. It's just like it was always going to happen the way it did, not because of predetermination or anything, because, you know, it was somebody new. But because it did happen mm-hmm. yeah, that way. And that's, like you that's didn't know maybe... that that was Hugo's last day on earth. He didn't exactly. know either. Yeah, he didn't know either. And anytime we ever tell ourselves a story, which is what we all do as humans, right? We have these ideas of how things should be in our mind, and then they don't line up with how we think they should be. And so that's when we create you know, the problem. Yeah. That's, what, that's when we suffer. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Man, Krista, this is some good stuff. This is going to help so many people. Thank you good. so much, we especially that. that story about the attending physician explaining everything and, and all of that. Like, I mean, I'm not ever going to tell anybody how they should respond and whether they should be emotional with a patient or not or whatever. But I do think that being willing to be open and really share what's going on for you rather than trying to be some version of super buttoned up and excessively professional. Like I think that really does. It just helps the person. For me, I think it made all the difference. If I had found out later that it was a mistake Mm -hmm. and, or however it had come to me, but it had come to me in, in a matter of, you know, a letter or data or something like that, I would have had a completely different probably experience of that than seeing him be so human with me. Right. And it helped me feel so much compassion for him as a human who was doing his best. Yeah. He didn't go into work that day thinking that that's what was going to be happening. Right. Like I just think about him and what happened like when he went Mm -hmm. home and how long he was really struggling with that whole. I even got a Facebook message a couple of years later, actually from one of the nurses. And she was like, you probably don't remember me, but I was one of your nurses in the intensive care unit. And I was there that day and I was with you in the room when you talked to the doctor and all of that. And she said, we still talk about that. We still talk about that experience and what a day that was for all of us. And so, you know, you have to know as, yeah, people are trying and it just doesn't always work out. Right, right. And even when other people can't see that and they don't offer you 
such a lovely way of, 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 you know, they're a lovely perspective. It's still the truth. Like you still get to think, you know, you know, you were doing the best that you could given whatever the situation was. Yeah. Right? And you don't need other people to agree with you to be able to, to find that space for yourself, right? Other people can have their own intense, negative emotions and intense reaction and their own thoughts and they will. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't take away from your ability to believe that you were doing the best job you could with what you knew. Yeah. yeah. And let it go for yourself so totally. that you can continue to go and serve other people. Right. Exactly. That's the thing. You can't let one experience like that completely shut you down. Yeah. That's yeah. not the, that's not the point of, you know, going into medicine in the first place. Right. Yeah. Oh, Super, super good stuff. Okay, so we're gonna come back for part two, which Love will it. be. Let's do it. <laughs> but in the we're meantime, like, wow, this was. <laughs> in one of your part two, this was intense. This is some good stuff. So, if people want to find out more information about the work that they do, how can they find you? Yeah, they can find me by going to Coaching with Krista, and it's spelled with a K, K R I S T A, CoachingWithKrista.com, and that's my website, and they can connect with me there. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Krista. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Did you know that you can find a lot more help from me on my website? Go to katrinaubelmd.com and click on free resources.